when you're making small talk with someone, the question, where are you from, is generally question two or three out of someone's mouth. They'll ask what your name is, maybe what's your occupation, and then where are you from? And if you're from a place like Wausau, Wisconsin, when you're talking to someone who lives outside of the Midwest, you generally get a couple of, yeah, predictable follow-up questions. The first one is usually, where's that? (laughs) Maybe, uh, are you a Packers fan? Or uh, do you really eat that much cheese? (laughs) Or do you really drink that much beer? Or, you know, how cold does it get there? A couple weeks ago, I was down in Tennessee. I was talking to some warm-blooded Southerners, and they asked, in the winter, how cold does it get? (laughs) And I rubbed my hands together and said, you know, I don't know if you're going to believe me, but in the winter, with wind chill, it's 40 or 50 degrees below zero. And they looked at me with that, I really think you need a psychiatrist sort of a look. You know what I mean? And, and that's when I felt like a real man in that moment, right? <laughs> For surviving our cold winters. Now, if I'm honest, I'm very proud of where I'm from. I love being from Wausau, especially when I consider some of the other towns in our country where we could be from. I consulted the powers of the internet and found some of the worst towns to call your hometown. How about boring Oregon or normal Illinois? I'm certainly glad I'm not from those two towns. I can promise you that millennials are not flocking to boring or normal for an exciting life. And I've driven through normal. It lives up to the hype. I'm sorry if you're from there. I'm certainly glad that I'm not from hell, Michigan. Yeah, you heard me right. It's a town 15 miles outside of Ann Arbor. It's an unincorporated village. Can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, imagine what the conversation would be like. Well, how hot is it in hell today, right? That's uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) The town, I'm not making this up. The town website is gotohellmichigan.com. And... Here's what the website says. More people tell you to go to our town than anywhere else on earth. (laughs) Let me just say that I'm glad that I don't live there. It'd be way too much explaining to do. Or how about this? I'm glad that I'm not from Dummer, New Hampshire. Imagine applying to go to an Ivy League school and they see that you're from Dummer. Yeah. (laughs) That would go right in the trash can. Or how about this? I'm glad that I'm not from Y, Arizona, W-H-Y. The town got its name uh, when they built these two interstates, 85 and 86, and they made a Y when they came together. But they didn't spell the town the letter Y. They spelt it W-H-Y, because that makes sense. Why? Well, probably because they want us to ask, why did they spell the town Y with a Y, right? It's just obnoxious. I'm also glad that I'm not from the town, (laughs) why not, Mississippi. Not making this up. There's a town in Mississippi called Why Not. Nobody knows how how it got its name, but I can imagine that the townspeople in Mississippi all assembled together and and were trying to decide, what do we name our new settlement? And some smart aleck raised his hand and said, let's name it Why Not. And everyone objected and said, that's a really stupid name. But he said, but why, why not, right? And they said, well, I don't have a good reason for that. So... It's a big surprise that not too many people have flocked to Why Not, Mississippi. Where we're from 
Amen. Where we're from (laughs) can put us in a box. Our hometown can build a stereotype for better or for worse. And I don't know if there's anyone that knew that better than Jesus. Think of John chapter 1, verse 46. Jesus is calling his first disciples, and here's a conversation that he has. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him who Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. You know Nazareth, you've heard of Nazareth. That's the town that Jesus grew up in, right? But could anything good come out of Nazareth? It's interesting that the man who said it, Nathanael, he wasn't from urban Jerusalem. He was from a town right down the road. He was from Bethsaida. That was like 26 miles away. It was like from here to Anawa. Nazareth was about the same size as Anawa. It was a small town. When Jesus' day, it was 200 to 500 people. It was a small agricultural community. But it would make sense if someone from urban Jerusalem would say, ah, Nazareth, those northerners, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But this is a guy who lived 26 miles away. And he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's saying something. Someone who was from a neighboring small town. We don't know a ton about Nazareth, maybe 200 to 500 people. It was so small that it was never once mentioned in the Old Testament. It was so insignificant that Old Testament scriptures didn't mention it. It only had one well from which they could draw water. And the people probably had a lack of culture. They probably talked with a funny accent, like some of you. Um, Probably had relaxed morals. And if I had to guess, the only reason that Nathaniel knew Nazareth was because he lived 26 miles away. If someone mentioned Nazareth way down in Jerusalem, they probably would have said, where's that? Where's Nazareth? Now, Jesus literally put Nazareth on the map. When Jesus grew up there, 200 or 500 people. Today, Nazareth and the town that's connected to it, a Jewish town called Nof Hagalil, together they have a population of over 100,000 people. A little different than when Jesus grew up there. Uh, And maybe we can put up one of the pictures of Nazareth. This is kind of what the area looks like. It's beautiful. It's hilly. Uh, Certainly, this isn't what it looked like when Jesus was there. But maybe the most uh, popular and iconic site in Nazareth uh, is the Church of the Annunciation. Maybe uh, if you could put up that picture as well. You could see it in the first picture and in this one. This is apparently the largest Roman Catholic uh, church in the Middle East. It's hard to tell in this picture, but the dome... Uh, is about as tall as the ceiling or the roof of the Dudley Tower downtown Wausau. It's 55 meters tall. It is huge. And it's built over the supposed site of Jesus' earthly mother, Mary, her childhood home. So if you ever make a trip to Nazareth, this is probably something uh, that you would see. But it's a massive building. But today, as we continue our series called The Great Adventure, Journeying with Jesus, we're going to journey together to Nazareth. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. But where we find ourselves is, is interesting. Um, we're going to take our, a trip to the synagogue in the first century on the Sabbath day. A little bit of context for our text. By this time, uh, Jesus had become a respected rabbi. His ministry didn't start. It didn't begin in Nazareth. It might make sense, but it's not where he started his ministry. And we know from other texts, and implicitly, if we read between the lines in our text, that Jesus had already done some miracles in the region of Galilee, namely Capernaum. So Jesus was a respected rabbi. He'd already performed some miracles. And then the hometown hero, he returns to Nazareth. 
and he's there on the Sabbath day, and he decides, I'm gonna go to synagogue. I'm gonna go to church on the Sabbath day. Now, some of us live in small towns. We know how things work. Things tend to make their way around town quickly. So I'm sure all two or 500 people knew that Jesus was gonna be in Nazareth. They knew he was gonna be there. And every single person in that town showed up to synagogue that day. I can guarantee that there wasn't even a space to sit on the floor because they were wondering, what's this guy gonna do? He's performed miracles down the road. What are we gonna see? What kind of show are we gonna see today? So that's where we find ourselves in Luke 4, verse 16 is where I'll start. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up or where he grew up. And as was his custom, he went to synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. I like how Luke puts that in there, as was his custom. He's basically telling you that Jesus was a model church attender. Didn't matter what town he was in, didn't matter where he was doing ministry, that Jesus always went to church on the Sabbath day. Uh, I can guarantee that trips to the cabin up north, traveling soccer, sleeping in, didn't get in the way of Jesus going to church. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. Verse 17. (laughs) And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And we've gotta be careful anytime we read scripture and we read a narrative account that we don't read our 21st century lens of church on the text. Because if we do, this doesn't make sense. Instead, we've gotta understand how a day at the synagogue on the Sabbath worked. And thanks to the Mishnah, which is a recording written down of Jewish tradition, we kind of know what an order of service looked like in Jesus' day in the first century. When they gathered at the synagogue, they would start with singing. They'd start by singing Psalms 145 through 150. And then they would recite the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And they would recite that passage together. And then they would recite 18 benedictions called the Tefillah. And then they would have a reading from the scroll, followed by a sermon and followed by the Aaronic blessing. But in Jesus' day, when a rabbi taught, he wouldn't stand in front of a group like I am today. Instead, the rabbi, the teacher, would teach while seated, and often the listeners would be on the floor. So when Jesus was handed the scroll, the attendant of the synagogue likely handed Jesus the scroll before they started the service and said, would you be willing to do our reading today? And Jesus, of course, said, yes, I'd I'd be happy to do the reading. So Jesus did the reading and followed by the reading was the sermon. But when Jesus stood up to read from the scroll, everyone else stood up in honor of God's word. But when Jesus sat down, likely he didn't go back and sit in the congregation. He sat in front as a teacher, as the one who was about to give the sermon, and then everyone was waiting to hear what he would have to say. But what did Jesus quote? Well, Isaiah 61. It's one of the servant of the Lord texts. It says that Jesus found it. It wasn't an accident. He went right to that text, and it's a text that's a prophecy of the Messiah, the one who's to come. And you can just imagine what that would have been like to hear Jesus say, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, liberty those who are oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after he read, you could hear a pin drop in the room. It was dead silent. And he sat down, and everyone was waiting for Jesus to preach his sermon. (laughs) And then he drops the mic. Look at verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? (laughs) So after you hear the pin drop, Jesus does the mic drop and says as clearly as possible that the prophecy from Isaiah 61, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, guys, that's me. And the people start by marveling. Wow, listen to the words that are coming out of this guy's mouth. But then the tone starts to change when they ask a fairly obvious question. Hold on a second. Isn't this Joseph's son? They're asking questions like, I remember teaching this kid in Sunday school. I remember when he was running around in his diaper. I remember when he worked as an unassuming carpenter. I was fishing buddies with his dad. I remember coaching him in Little League. I remember when he went through that awkward eighth grade growth spurt and his voice kept cracking, right? It's almost as if the people thought, okay, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, if you're really the guy that Isaiah's talking about in Isaiah 61, prove it. Call the guy up to the front. Restore sight to the blind man. Make that person walk again. Heal them. Prove that you're the Messiah. But Jesus reads their minds, demonstrating his deity. And as he continues his sermon, <laughs> people don't really like it very much. Verse 23. He said to them, doubtless, you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you do at Capernaum, do it here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Well, that's a change, isn't it? The synagogue went from marveling to murder in a matter of minutes. Reading their minds, Jesus quotes a a proverb that they probably knew, not from the book of Proverbs, but a familiar saying, physician, heal yourself. Now the implication is spiritual. If somebody claims to have supernatural healing power, but then they walk with a limp, you probably should doubt the reliability of their claim. They're skeptical. They've heard what Jesus did across Galilee. They've heard the rumors and they're just murmuring among themselves, If this guy's it, it's time for him to show us. It's time for him to call someone to the front and make him walk. If this guy's gonna perform miracles down the road, it's time for his hometown to get a cut of the glory. Give us what we came for, Jesus. Give us a show. You realize that they wanted what Jesus had to offer. They desired the benefits of Jesus, not a relationship with Jesus. But Jesus doesn't give them what they wanted. Instead, he preaches the sermon that they needed. And to say that it ticked them off, well, 
that would probably be a bit of an understatement. They became so filled with wrath that they drove him to the edge of a cliff to kill him. You've got to be really mad at the hometown boy in like five minutes to go from, you know, liking what he's saying to drive him off a cliff. You've got to be really angry. (laughs) So what were they angry about? Well, before I can answer that question, we've got to do a little bit of a language lesson. Think about Jesus' name, Jesus Christ. Maybe you think that Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not, it's a title. Jesus' last name would have been Jesus, son of Joseph, or Jesus of Nazareth, just as Nathaniel called him. But that's not, uh, but Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus Christ is a title. And in Hebrew, the word Messiah, if we were to translate it literally, means anointed one. Did you catch that in Isaiah 61? The spirit of the Lord has anointed me. It's the same Hebrew word. By quoting Isaiah 61, Jesus is saying that I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one that the Old Testament has promised. And as he continues, then he highlights the purpose of his coming to proclaim good news, to release people who are in spiritual bondage, to restore sight to the blind, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. If that's not a picture of Jesus' ministry, then nothing is. But if you were an astute student of Isaiah 61, as I'm sure all of you are, then you would have noticed something unique. Jesus stops reading the text right in the middle of a paragraph, right in the middle of a sentence. He quotes Isaiah 61a, but leaves off b. 61 verse 2a says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And some of you are turning there. The next line says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus leaves out the vengeance line. Why? Certainly he didn't do it by accident. It's the same reason why the, why the Jews in the synagogue were infuriated with Jesus. Because when we read a text like Luke 4, it might be easy, easy for us at a surface level reading to think, certainly they were angry at Jesus because he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the anointed one. I don't think so. What happened after Jesus said, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing? They marveled. That didn't make them mad. It was the rest of Jesus' sermon that made them mad. It was the two accounts that, that Jesus highlights. He looks at very, two very important figures in the Old Testament. The first is Elijah. Elijah was God's man. He was a prophet during maybe the darkest time in the history of the nation of Israel. And there was a drought, a famine in the land. And God sends Elijah miles away, not to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to the land of Sidon, to a widow and her son who were this close to running out of food. He miraculously provides food for them, presumably for years. And then sometime later, her son dies and Elijah raises him from the dead. Jesus says that presumably there were hundreds of other widows in the land of Israel who were starving. And God bypasses the Israelites and sends his man Elijah to go save the life of a Gentile, of a foreigner. And if one example is not enough, then he looks to Naaman. Naaman, he was the Syrian commander of, of the army and Naaman had leprosy. It's a very contagious skin condition back in Bible times. 
And what happened with Naaman is he had just done a raid of an Israelite city and he'd taken a young girl back with him. And this young girl said, Naaman, I know a man in Israel who could heal your leprosy. It was Elisha, another one of God's prophets, the successor to Elijah. So God uses Elisha to heal Naaman. Naaman wasn't just a Gentile. He wasn't just a foreigner. He was the commander of the Syrian army. And God bypasses probably hundreds, thousands of lepers in the nation of Israel and sends Elisha to go heal the commander of the enemy army. Is it starting to click? And Jesus is saying that God's heart throughout history has not just been for the Jewish people that God's heart throughout history, throughout the Old Testament has been for all people. And what Jesus tells his hometown, if you're not gonna listen to me, if you're not gonna believe that I'm, Messiah, I'm the Messiah, don't worry. God's plan is for the good news of the gospel, God's grace, his forgiveness to extend not just to the Jews, but to all people. Because the Jews, they believed that they were God's chosen people. And certainly the Jews had a special covenant with God, a covenant that they quite frankly shredded because of their disobedience. But when Jesus came, he initiated a new covenant where it broke ethnic barriers and cultural barriers that despite where someone was from, that anybody who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. That's not what the Jews wanted. The Jews wanted a military Messiah. The Jews wanted a man who's gonna come in and overthrow the Romans and overthrow their enemies, who's gonna bring down fire and brimstone on everyone that wanted them dead. They'd been in bondage for hundreds of years. They didn't want salvation for their enemies. They wanted death and destruction. They wanted to rule over them. And Jesus comes in the synagogue and says, no, you've got it all wrong. I didn't come to destroy those nations. I came to save them. And what Jesus said was so infuriating to his audience, that they tried to kill him. It's wild. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Theodore's going to be a preacher someday. I know it. <laughs> Jesus left out Isaiah 61, the day of vengeance, because Jesus came to initiate healing and forgiveness and peace, which is available to all people. Certainly, the gift of salvation is available to all, but it's not received by everyone. So God's judgment, his punishment, it, it's coming, it's yet to come. But Jesus' incarnation, it wasn't a time of justice and, and judgment, but it was a time, as Isaiah says, is the year of the Lord's favor. Now, almost all of us here tonight are not ethnically Jewish, we're Gentiles. So this passage applies directly to us. Praise the Lord for the beauty of the new covenant promises, the breakdown of ethnic and cultural barriers through Christ, that none of us have to adapt to a different culture in order to believe in Jesus. But within our text, for Jesus' audience, there were some major misconceptions about the coming Messiah that our text helps us understand. Jesus came to overthrow our spiritual enemy, Satan, not the Jews' enemy, the Romans. Salvation, it's personal, not national. Jesus came to redeem the individual souls of each person who would believe from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just from one nation. 
Jesus came to reveal the Father's patience, not his wrath, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would reach repentance. Instead, Jesus himself took God's wrath, destined for us so that we could walk free. Jesus didn't come simply to restore glory to Israel. He came to glorify the Father. Jesus' audience, they were infuriated that he would even suggest God's grace towards all nations, towards all people, that they tried to murder him. It's a major heart problem. Now, before we start pointing a finger at Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, I wonder how often we felt or thought something similar. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm not suggesting that you've taken someone to the top of the quarry and threatened to push them off. But instead, I wonder how often we might show gospel prejudice or gospel favoritism. That's our big idea tonight. We don't decide who deserves the gospel. We don't decide who deserves the gospel. What does this look like? Well, maybe we have some broad gospel prejudices that we don't realize. Maybe there's certain groups of people who we don't have compassion for, or maybe there's groups of people that we would say, yeah, they don't really deserve a chance to hear the good news about Jesus. Maybe it's cultural. Maybe there's a people group because they're different than you or because of their religious beliefs or because they seem anti-Christian or anti-American that you've never even thought about sharing the good news of the gospel with. Maybe you consider yourself poor and there's this underlying hatred towards the ultra wealthy that when a rich person becomes a Christian, it almost makes you mad. Maybe celebrities get under your skin. And when the thought comes to your mind, oh, maybe I should pray for that celebrity, your immediate response is, nah. Maybe when you hear of a prison ministry, you get judgmental and think, why would anyone go share the good news of Jesus with a felon, a convict, a drug dealer, an abuser? They don't deserve compassion and grace. Maybe it's possible that gospel prejudice hits a little closer to home. Instead of a group of people, maybe a specific person comes to your mind. Maybe you're politically minded and you can't even imagine trying to share the good news of Jesus with that selfish Republican or that liberal Democrat. Maybe your boss is a total jerk and the thought of doing anything compassionate toward her or him makes you sick. Maybe you've suffered a grave injustice because of someone else's selfishness or pride. You can't even bring yourself to talk to them. Maybe there's someone in your life who's deposited remarkable pain in your heart that's caused trauma in your life. If that's you, I'm so sorry. It might be tempting to think, how could I ever desire that he or she becomes a Christian after what they've done to me? There's no way that they deserve forgiveness. Friends, we have to understand that none of us are worthy of the gospel. None of us deserve God's grace. None of us have earned God's grace. That's the beauty of the good news, that it can't be earned. Forgiveness cannot be bought. Grace can never be deserved. Otherwise, it would cease to be grace. We need to consider the sacrifice of Jesus for us. It's what Paul writes in Titus 3, 4 and 5. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not by works done by us in our righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's a couple different groups of people here tonight. Maybe some of you are here who've believed 
a lie. That you can do a number of good things to earn favor with God. Maybe it's being baptized as an infant or being confirmed or taking communion or just being a loving, kind person, hoping that your good deeds outweigh your bad. God's morality, the way he judges us, it's not relative. It's absolute. It's not, I hope I'm a decent person. I hope my good outweighs my bad. Even if we were to do one evil deed, that would separate us from God for eternity. And I promise there's not one of us in the room who have a resume of sin that has one thing on it. Don't believe the lie that you can earn your way into heaven. Now, maybe there's others of you here tonight that have believed the opposite lie. Man, if Sam knew what I've done in my past, (laughs) he wouldn't be saying that I could be forgiven. That if everybody here knew what I've done, that if my life was on display for all to see, there's no way that I could be forgiven. That's why I love a passage like 1 Timothy 1. It's like Paul anticipated that lie that the enemy likes to try to plant in our minds, where Paul writes this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, of whom I'm the foremost. But I, Paul, receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. You hear what Paul is saying? He's saying, I'm the worst sinner. No one's gonna be worse than me. No one's been worse than me. And when someone believes the lie that they think they're too bad to be forgiven, that their sin is too deep for Jesus to cover, that they've got to look at a verse like this and say, no, God saved Paul. If he can forgive Paul, then he can forgive you. Don't believe the lie that you're too bad to be forgiven. Because when you and I look in the mirror, frankly, when we look at our past, (laughs) we should be distraught at our own record of sin and rebellion against God. And when we think about sin being deeper than just our actions, but our thoughts and our motives and our attitudes, our indecision, our laziness, our apathy, our idolatry, I'm convinced that all of us could say the same words as Paul, that I'm the worst of sinners and believe it. Or maybe God called you to himself at a young age. And if that's the case, you might be able to think of someone that is a worse sinner than you. But I want you to consider a very hypothetical what if. What if God wouldn't have intervened in your life at a young age? What if he hadn't surrounded you with the Christian context that you grew up in? What if he hadn't shielded you from certain vices or temptations? Just imagine how bad you or I could have been. I think if we're honest, we could all say what Paul says. And if we're honest, it's painfully hypocritical to accept unconditional forgiveness from Jesus, but then dictate who else deserves that same forgiveness. In reality, there's people in all of our lives who are hard to love. There's people who test our patience. There's people who we might not be inclined or desire to share the good news with, especially if they've hurt us, especially if we don't like them. So then what does it look like to grow in our big idea, 
to grow in extending love and grace and compassion to all people. I have three ideas. Those are our principles tonight. Three steps on how we can practically employ our big idea. Don't worry, it's not rocket science. The first is pray. Pray. There's two aspects to our first principle. The first is internal. We have to pray for our heart. Ask God to change my heart so that if there's bitterness, that we ask him to give us the strength to forgive by releasing the individual who's hurt us. If there's apathy or indifference, then we should pray for change. If there's fear, then we should ask God for courage. If there's misplaced priorities, then we need to ask God for balance. Ultimately, salvation is a work that God does in someone's heart. So beyond just praying for our hearts, we need to pray for others. We don't save anybody. God does the saving. We're ambassadors, messengers of his gospel message. So maybe there's someone that God's placed on your heart. Step one is praying for them and asking that God might work in their heart, convicting them of their sin and drawing them to himself that they might believe in Jesus as their personal savior. I think we might be surprised at how our hearts might begin to soften and change when we simply begin praying for those we might not be inclined to like. I think we also might be surprised that when we pray that someone might decide to follow Jesus, how the Lord might open some doors for us to be ambassadors of the gospel. Number two is love. First we pray, then we love. This is practical. Find a practical way to extend heartfelt love and compassion. Maybe it's a phone call to a relative to say hi. Maybe it's an encouraging text to the coworker that annoys you every day. Maybe it's a random act of kindness to that neighbor who you've had a hard time building a relationship with. Maybe it's a friend who has a tangible need that you can help meet. Find a practical way to show love and compassion. Number three is, is share. But the share is specific. We need to share the gospel. We need to share the gospel. Just like we talked about last week, our acts of love and compassion and kindness must culminate with gospel opportunities. Now, is that always possible? (laughs) Not in every interaction that we have with someone, but the goal of compassion, the goal of our second step, love, is gospel bridges, is sharing the good news of Christ. Because that's the most compassionate thing that we can do for someone else is to share the good news of Christ. That's why Jesus came into the world, not to give people a better life, but to save them from their sin. And we have the chance to be an ambassador of the greatest imaginable gift, Jesus himself. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. You don't know what it means to believe in him and trust in him by faith for your salvation. Don't leave tonight without talking to somebody about what it means to believe in Jesus. And for each of us, what would it look like to find one of these principles to focus on this week? Maybe there's one that we're a little weaker in than the other, and we can spend time focusing on prayer, on love, or on sharing the gospel. Maybe there's a person or two that God has brought to your heart, has convicted you to demonstrate love toward this week. Just imagine what would happen if all 150 of us here tonight would employ all three of these principles this summer? What would happen then if God's, by God's grace, 150 new people believed in Jesus for the first time? That'd be incredible. That's how revival starts. Those are decisions that have ripple effects for eternity. That's how world change begins.
That's what Jesus has called us to. Because we've experienced unconditional forgiveness, we can share Jesus' forgiveness unconditionally. Let's pray together. Father, it is always good to take a good long look at our Savior and to see the way that he lived and walked and interacted with others, the way that he loved people unconditionally yet was not afraid to share hard truths. May we grow in our grace like Jesus, our love like Jesus. May we grow in our boldness and our courage like Jesus, that we can be the ambassadors, the followers that you desire us to be. (laughs) Father, you know none of us are perfect. You know that all of us have incredible room for growth. But this week, give us the courage to take the next step in our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.